what tends to happen to me is that a lot of people will come to my sections, uh, probably because I'm not mean to them, I would guess. This is Jane Ponengan describing her experience as a teaching assistant. Lots of the other math grad students are nice too, but um, I feel like I put in a lot of effort into into being like a, you know, an, a nice and encouraging person. So I think that people respond well to that. Jane is a now fifth year graduate student in mathematics at Caltech. I interviewed her in July of 2020 over Zoom. Trying to be kind may not seem that unusual, but Jane is a truly unique teacher. I had a student in my class who had a lot of pet snakes and I really liked these pet snakes. And then my student, you know, sometimes he would bring one of his snakes in and the snake would like stay around my neck while I was teaching. Though Jane is deeply involved in math and in teaching, she also works tirelessly towards other goals in the city of Pasadena, where Caltech is located. I feel like I should actually get a PhD in like tenant advocacy or something. <laughs> I'm Sophia Charun. And I'm Heidi Klumpa. This is Not My Thesis, a podcast where we understand science via the hearts and minds creating it. In the fourth chapter of Not My Thesis, Jane Panengaden explains the abstract world of pure math and the delights of exploring it as well as her work advocating for tenants' rights in Pasadena. While dividing her time between writing proofs and legislation, Jane grapples with how we apply our skills, technical or otherwise, to bring a different world into existence. She asks us to consider, why do math? Jane is earning her PhD in pure math, a discipline that differs from some of the other sciences we've covered. Math is not a science Mm -hmm. at all, actually. Um, It doesn't describe or model or predict anything in reality. Um, I think that tools that are developed in math are really useful for pretty much every science. But the process of doing math doesn't feel like the process of doing a science at all. You're not trying to describe anything, and you can't do experiments to check if they're actually describing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, You're just kind of, you're essentially like creating a playground for yourself and then just seeing what you can do in it. Right. Um, So I guess that's what I mean by it's, it's an aesthetic field. Like you, it doesn't pertain to reality really. Mm -hmm. Um, And people generally, I mean, it certainly has applications in other sciences that are very useful. That's not really why people choose to pursue certain questions. They just, they set up some playground and then they they just want to play around in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. According to Jane, her field of non-commutative geometry might better be compared to art than to science because... Though it might turn out to be useful for understanding something physical, the questions themselves are divorced from reality and are investigated solely because they are interesting. At the same time, everyone enjoys a good logic puzzle, right? Like people do Sudokus for fun, right? Right. So I think everyone can appreciate like what is aesthetic about it, like getting everything to fit into place and how it feels good. 
This joy in puzzles might feel very different from the rote calculations done in many middle school math classrooms, because learning math is often very different from creating it. So I guess for people who aren't working in the field of math, a lot of times it can be um, not really what people expect. I think what we learn in high school is a lot of uh, just computation, like implementing algorithms, like how do I multiply you know, two large numbers together or something like that. But math research is really about, you know, first defining some some rules that determine how a particular system behaves and then trying to, um, you know, abstractly argue uh, that the system will always have like some kind of certain types of behavior. So it's more about like logical arguments and, and proofs rather than computation. These proofs are like the kind that you might have done in high school geometry, where you prove that, for example, on a right triangle, there's a specific relationship between the lengths of the three sides defined by Pythagoras' theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. In English, that means that if you take the square of the length of the two shorter sides of the right triangle and add them up, then you have the square of the length of the longest side of the triangle. You can measure the lengths of 100 right triangles and notice that this is the case for all of them. But until you prove it formally, you can't be absolutely sure that it will be true for the 101st triangle. Proving this about right triangles means that you don't have to measure every single one you come across. Once you know this, other people can use what you've shown as a step in their proofs. So Pythagoras' theorem can also help you discover things about other shapes, like squares. This is what Jane does. So, I mean, in practice, uh, the field has a lot of machinery. And what I mean by that is people have like built up structures that have very complicated definitions. So you need, you know, like many pages just to define some of these objects and structures. These objects and structures, the results constructed by her and previous generations of mathematicians, are the materials that Jane can use to build her own proofs. Some people have put in already a lot of effort into proving some uh, general properties, and it takes a lot of time to like understand those properties that other people have already derived. This is an idea common to all research, so much so that one of the mottos of a major search engine for academic articles is that we all stand on the shoulders of giants. In Jane's field, though, this reality is even more apparent. So I spend a lot of my time just trying to figure out how things are defined and what people have already proved about them. And sometimes like modifying the definition slightly if it's not describing exactly the thing I want and then seeing, you know, if those, how those other properties are affected by that. For example, if you draw a triangle on a sphere, then it has new properties. One of these is that the sum of its angles no longer needs to be 180 degrees. A lot of it is just, it's the feeling of doing this kind of math is like building up a really complicated scaffolding kind of, Mm -hmm. that like you need to just understand where all these moving parts are and and how they fit in relation to each other. And then, um, I don't know, that's the challenging part to me, just like remembering what what everything is defined as and how it yeah and how it fits when piecing together this old knowledge in pursuit of something new 
Jane argues from abstraction. Yeah, so uh, abstraction is this idea that you can model like a lot of specific instances of something um, by kind of determining some common property that they all have and then only considering that kind of common property and then coming to a conclusion using only that. Um, and then that conclusion will apply to all the more specific concrete cases. With abstraction, instead of thinking about specific instances of triangles, you think about their common properties, like that they all have three sides. While she was getting her master's degree, Jane used abstraction to work on math problems that had implications for physics. She investigated a fundamental test case. What I worked on in my master's was um, this idea that if you take two systems and one of them is just like a thermal bath at some temperature. So you imagine like a really, a really big uniform like body of water or gas or something at one temperature and you attach like a comparatively small system to it. In classical physics, we know that the smaller system, if you leave it there for long enough, will eventually like equilibrate to the same temperature as that large bath. Left alone, things at different temperatures equilibrate or exchange energy until they become the same temperature. This is intuitive. If you put an ice cube in a pot of water, eventually the ice will melt and the temperature of the pot will decrease. This equilibration is the same as if you have a bathtub full of water. The ice cube will melt, but the temperature of the water hardly changes at all. Understanding heat exchange is a fundamental physics problem that allows for many kinds of engineering. For example, safely managing the heat generated by chemical reactions is a key part of designing chemical plants. What I was working on is understanding that process if the systems are quantum rather than classical. A classical understanding of the world is a description of physics we find intuitive. If I divide this cup of water I have in two and then in two again, it feels like I could do that forever. Eventually, though, I wouldn't be able to divide the water anymore. Quantum mechanics is a theory of the world that applies at these very small scales, scales smaller than an atom. The word quantum just means discrete and indivisible, and in the quantum understanding of the world, both matter and energy come in discrete amounts. Of course, even if things are at the smallest level quantum, they may look continuous when you zoom out just as an image on a computer screen looks smooth, though it's composed of many small pixels. So it was already known that, um, that the smaller system would equilibrate with the bath. And uh, the other thing that, that is well known in classical mechanics is that the, um, that the like, energy that is uh, lost by the system is equal to the energy that's gained by the bath. And... That was also known in the quantum case, actually. But because in the quantum case, we have to measure things using probability distributions instead of just like single numbers, mm -hmm. the question was kind of, is the entire probability distribution that describes the energy, energy transfer also kind of equal? In the classic case, someone only needs to know the single number that's the average of the distribution to understand the energy transfer. But since the quantum system works in probabilities, the shape of the distribution is important. 
For example, if a professor tells you that, in her two classes, the average grade is a C, that tells you nothing about the grade distribution in each class. It could be that, in one class, half the students received a D and the other half a B, and in the other class, every student received a C. Just because the average is the same doesn't mean that the distribution is the same. Is, is the energy distribution that describes the energy of the bath um, kind of like the negative of the energy distribution that describes the small system? And that actually turns out to be true, which is pretty surprising um, because, I mean, I, I was surprised because normally when we measure things in real life, we can only measure the averages. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the whole distribution and was actually the same seems like it didn't need to be true, but it is. Knowing that the averages are the same is important knowledge, but not nearly as interesting as knowing that the distribution itself is the same. It's like Jane discovered that students in the two classes received the exact same number of A's, B's, C's, D's, and F's, and that was why the class average was the same. After figuring that out, Jane kept her focus on non-commutative systems, which require the same math tools, but moved away from applying these tools to physics questions. My current field is non-commutative geometry. Commutative means uh, that A times B is equal to B times A. Non-commutative structures are are things where that doesn't hold, and uh, that's kind of the the math basis for why these quantum systems are interesting, because they're not commutative. Jane is also interested in mathematical problems that involve a specific type of structure. One of the tools that's used a lot to study um, these kinds of questions is this thing called C-star algebras. I really like thinking about C-star algebras. They're also what we use to describe the quantum statistical mechanics systems. C-star is written as the letter C and then an asterisk, not like the fish with five arms. It just so happens that the quantum system is a system that obeys the laws of C-star algebras. So, just like if you encounter a triangle out in the wild, if you can figure out that it's a right triangle, then you know a lot about it. The same is the case for the systems defined by C-star algebras. When Jane proves something is a C-star algebra, she hasn't just given it a new label, but she's also shown that it can do all the things a C-star algebra can do. This predictability is something that Jane enjoys about working with this structure, and which she describes as rigid. They're not technical terms, but they're words that mathematicians use. Um, Okay. (laughs) They don't have technical definitions. I see, I see, I see. It's like, it's more of a vibe. It's like words that mathematicians use to describe the vibe of different objects. I mean, yeah, I don't mean rigid literally. Like, mm-hmm. you know, don't don't picture like a rigid rod or something. Yeah, I meant right. I meant that in more of like a philosophical <laughs> way. <laughs> like, they're the opposite of wild. So some structures don't have a lot of rules, and then they can have a lot of wild behavior, like unpredictable behavior. But these structures do have a lot of rules, and as a result, they're kind of like very predictable. Mm-hmm. And so if you can find out that something happens to be a C-star algebra, it's like, oh, great, now I know a lot of information about how it's going to behave. Cool. And that's satisfying to me, I guess. 
yeah, that's an example of the abstraction that I was talking about, where if you can prove something about C star algebras in general, um, then you can also conclude something about every single object that happens to be a C star algebra. Even if Jane's mathematical research is about finding general statements to describe lots of things at once, she does this work in a very specific context, as a student at Caltech. There are lots of aspects of being at a university outside those that most people normally consider when selecting a graduate school. For example, I deliberated about my potential advisor, but I didn't think about how I would be perpetually dehydrated even though I knew that I was entering a desert-like environment. Jane's understanding about what it means to be at Caltech also changed once she arrived on campus. Yeah, I guess maybe I'll like elaborate on how it feels to be at Caltech specifically. Mm-hmm. So like when I came here, I didn't know anything about Caltech except for I, that my advisor was here. Um, that was basically the main consideration that it was going to be really warm and it wasn't going to snow anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and that um, that this is where Feynman was. And this was kind of like a big deal because when my dad was um, a teenager in India, the Indian government like printed really cheaply the Feynman lectures. And so him and all his nerdy friends were obsessed with Feynman as kids. And, and you know, subsequently they you became also. obsessed with Caltech as a place and, mm-hmm. And so it like for my dad's half of the family, it was like a big deal that I was coming here. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like my grandfather, who is, I think like 96 or 97 when I moved here, even kind of like perked up out of his, uh, <laughs> you know, fog of brain fog and was like, oh, you're going to council. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I didn't, but I guess the point is I didn't really know much about the history of this place or, or what its role is in the world. And since I've been here, I've learned that Caltech is, has a really quite horrifying history and, and quite a horrifying present as well mm-hmm. in terms of what it's involved with. I have kind of had a fascination with the eugenics movement for a while, even before moving here. Mm-hmm. And, and the eugenics movement was kind of this uh, a social political movement that grew out of the idea of uh, evolution and, and Darwinism that said that we should basically, quote unquote, improve the human population through selective breeding, which, as you can imagine, was extremely ended up being extremely racist and also targeting disabled people. And after I moved here, I learned that Caltech, um, a lot of its early founders, board members, and president were also part of a a think tank that was advocating for uh, forced sterilization for eugenic purposes. And I also discovered that all of their records are in the Caltech archives. Many of the people involved in Caltech's early history, such as Robert Milliken, 
who is widely considered the person who made Caltech the research university it is today, and who, at the time of this interview, had a prominent building on campus named after him, though it has since been renamed. Many of these people were members of the Human Betterment Foundation, which described itself explicitly as a society whose first problem was to, quote, take over the investigation of the possibilities of race betterment by eugenic sterilization, end quote. California alone performed 20,000 sterilizations in the first half of the 20th century. The foundation even mailed their pamphlet on the success of sterilizations in California to Nazi administrators. When it disbanded in 1943, the foundation donated its documents and remaining funds to Caltech, which is why they can be found in the Caltech archives. So I started reading into those records um, and... In particular, one of the things that's down there is just case files from doctors who have performed these um, sterilizations and just describing each of the patients. And so I've sat down there and just read through those case files and, and what they had to say about these people. And in a lot of cases, it was clear that they had not obtained consent, that they were targeting like poor people, that they were targeting Mexican immigrants, all kinds of these things. The things they had to say about women were pretty messed up too, you know. They were writing detailed reports about their sex lives and, and whether they were sleeping with their husbands or not and measuring the success of the operations along those axes. So it was really it's really gross and horrifying. Um, yeah, and, and I learned that this kind of wasn't an aberration and that Caltech was conceived of as an institute that was constantly connected to government and to private industry that was supposed to help advance like American economic and political interests. Um, that, yeah, the ties to the military have been there since it started and continue to be there today. Part of the way that Caltech transformed itself from a local school to a global research institution was in contributing science to the military during World War I. I kind of feel that whatever I'm contributing here, it's part of my, my labor and energy is going towards those ends, and that feels really horrible. Yeah. And I think it's really led me to question my role in the institution. Yeah, even, even when I'm teaching, which I love to do, am I giving the skills to someone who's going to go work for Raytheon and like, are they going to build bombs that they're, that are then going to be deployed in the Middle East? Like, is that what I'm right. contributing to? So that's been really hard to grapple with. And I don't think I really understood those connections um, before I came here. It's not just that students graduate and then work for organizations that Jane objects to, but that these organizations come to campus to actively recruit students. One thing that I've been really concerned about since I came here is who is allowed or who is invited to recruit at Caltech. Jane goes to a lot of these recruitment presentations. So the person giving a presentation was a Caltech alum. Uh, she did her undergrad at Caltech and her PhD, I believe, at MIT. And she, she works for the Institute for Defense Analyses now. And what she does is uh, she kind of optimizes non-lethal weapons. 
So she tries to make non-lethal weapons that have, you know, the most deterrent properties possible without killing people. And she even projected this image of like kind of a finite model, um, a finite element model of like a human torso with like a rubber bullet hitting it during the presentation. Like you could see it compacting the chest cavity. And I was just thinking to myself, like, how do you end up there? You know, and why did we invite this person into our space? Um, and, you know, obviously I went to the session with the goal of counter recruiting. I right, wasn't right, actually right. <laughs> working for the idea. <laughs> Generally what I do um, is when, when we go to these sessions, we'll let the recruiter talk for a little bit and then we just start hitting them with kind of pointed questions right. about the moral and ethical implications of their work. Um, but, you know, it's not just that one recruitment session. These happen every couple of months. The CIA is here or the NSA or someone. Caltech is quite small. So I've been at these same events and heard Jane ask these questions. During one panel about the connection between science and public policy, Jane asked a speaker from a policy think tank that is often commissioned by the government about some very disturbing parts of the institution's past, especially related to their involvement in the Vietnam War. Later, I ended up interning there. In fact, one of the reasons I was excited about this job was because the speaker's answer to Jane's questions struck me as honest and pragmatic. At my internship many months after the panel, I talked with the employee who spoke at Caltech and answered Jane's questions. It was clear that their encounter was still eating at her. She told me that she had tried to find the student after the event because she was upset, referring to Jane, but she had already left. Jane's response to this was, oh, that's, that's, that's good to know that it does make people uncomfortable. <laughs> that's the goal. <laughs> yeah, I guess like my main goal when I do these things is, is not really to make the recruiters uh, uncomfortable or rethink what they're doing, but just to make uh, the other students feel uncomfortable going mm-hmm. to work for those places. Jane asks these questions for the students perhaps to discourage them from joining these organizations, or at least to prod them to think carefully about why they're doing so. Sometimes, Jane and her colleagues take more drastic actions. The other thing we did recently that I'm really proud of is that we, uh, (laughs) during the last career fair, we set up a candlelight vigil in front of the CIA recruiting table. And I think we so demoralized the recruiter that he said he was going on lunch break early and then he never returned. Wow. <laughs> and then I, but he left his tablecloth out that said CIA on it. So then I started sitting at the table. <laughs> and some people came up and they were like, you're not a CIA recruiter. I recognize you. <laughs> and I was just like, what do you mean? I represent the Central Intelligence Agency. <laughs> Yeah, but I guess, you know, the, yeah, the, the point of these things is just is to make people, like, confront the implications of what they're doing um, mm-hmm. and not be able to just compartmentalize it and shove it away. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that we are in a really unique position to be able to do because not many people have access to these spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel kind of obligated to always be there kind of pushing back. Jane thinks pure math is disconnected from her reality. 
you know, math is cool and it's, it's an fundamentally an aesthetic field. Like it's like doing art or something. You basically just do it because it's pretty and that's nice and fun, but it suddenly seems like if, if people are rioting around me, then maybe I shouldn't just be doing math. I think if I lived in a utopian society, I would still like to be an academia. <laughs> the problem is that it's difficult to both produce new math and address the world's problems. Jane grew up in a house where both her parents were academics, and she saw this firsthand. I think one thing that's hard is that as academics, we're often expected to devote basically all of our brain energy to the uh, scientific projects that we're working on. And I definitely saw that with my parents, you know, like they would come home from work, but like their brains are still working on their projects all the time. Right. Um, You can't really turn it off that easily. Yeah. And I think that's not something that needs to be inherent to working on a scientific project, right? It's kind of like a culture in academia that we have cultivated Mm -hmm. that you just are supposed to be thinking about it all the time. And I don't want that to be my future. I want to be able to think also about the actual world that I'm existing in and be conscious about what I'm doing. (laughs) So in my first year, a group of us started uh, Socialists of Caltech on campus Mm -hmm. And we kind of made a conscious decision to do a lot of our organizing work off of campus uh, for a few reasons. One of them is just that it's really hard to organize Caltech students because of exactly the thing I described, that there's this culture of being like totally in your project all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And just because people are very busy and working hard. Um, So one of the things we kind of branched into was we, we kind of joined as a block, uh, the Pasadena Tenants Union, and have been putting a lot of effort into building up its capacity and, uh, you know, getting its organizational structures in place. Pasadena, which is just northeast of Los Angeles, is home to Caltech and many of Caltech's graduate students. Tenants unions like the one in Pasadena are organizations of renters who advocate together for issues in their collective interest. This includes things like rent control, or like a right to a lawyer when being evicted, or a specific list of reasons someone would be able to be evicted. One of the reasons we kind of decided to go into this like tenant organizing is because um, being tenants is something that connects a huge number of people. Almost, I would say probably all of the grad students at Caltech are tenants. Right. Uh, in a lot of cases, Caltech is their landlord, but in a lot of other cases, it's not. Like, I mm-hmm. um, I have a landlord, you know, who's not Caltech. Right, same, same. Um, <laughs> and I think that, like, coming together over this common position that we hold as not having control over our own, over our own homes Mm-hmm. Um, is a way for us to really connect with the broader Pasadena community. Um, so over 50% of the households in Pasadena are renter households. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a city of renters. And 
um, yeah, landlords just have like a huge disproportionate amount of power over controlling the community and unfortunately pushing certain people out of it. And so I guess realizing my position as a tenant and connecting with like other tenants in the city who aren't necessarily part of Caltech has really grounded me in the community of the city. In areas or buildings without rent control, a landlord can substantially increase a tenant's rent with little notice. If the tenant can't pay, they must move out or risk getting evicted. Pasadena doesn't currently have city rent control, except for loose rules that apply to everywhere in the state of California. Once temporary renter protections due to COVID-19 are lifted, many people could be evicted. Jane and the Pasadena Tenants Union have been working hard to improve conditions for renters. Yeah, so we have a lot of meetings. <laughs> we have a ton of meetings and, uh, and uh, you know, we have some, some flashy actions where we'll go, you know, picket a landlord's house or we'll go like as a block and bother city council until they, you know, pass a law that we want them to pass. But organizing those things requires like doing a ton of one-on-one outreach, um, getting people on board, canvassing the neighborhoods, uh, knocking on doors, uh, you know, compiling email lists. But another part of Jane's work is just showing up when people need her. A, A big kind of central core of the work is what we call the solidarity work, which is where we just offer ourselves, um, in any way that's useful for other tenants who are having problems. So like I've gone over to someone's house who I don't even know because they're having a housing inspection done by the city and they want someone, you know, a witness there to make sure that the inspection is done properly. Right, right, right. Um, Or, you know, someone just needs someone to deliver groceries or, Mm -hmm. or someone doesn't understand a particular law and they don't know if their landlord is, is, you know, doing something correct or or illegal, or they just want someone to come support them in eviction court or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we do a lot of that. And that is incredibly difficult uh, and emotionally draining because people will call into the hotline and say, you know, I'm getting kicked out of my home. I don't know what to do. And it's, and and it's not like we're lawyers either. Right. right? right. So (laughs) we're just, we're just trying to do our best to help. Um, in whatever way is possible, but it's really it's really incredibly rewarding because sometimes you win those fights and then mm-hmm. somebody gets to stay in their home. Yeah, and that's like the best feeling ever. <laughs> <laughs> I recently went to. Um, eviction court with uh, with a family whose landlord was trying to kick them out and uh, and the way that, that eviction court works is that there are these lawyers who just sit there all day and uh, the landlords just call, like hire them so it's the same lawyer who prosecutes like every case mm-hmm. um, and they just have a huge stack of files and they basically always win and and uh, they will come out in the hallway and like yell at the tenants and try to intimidate them into settling uh before it goes before the judge Uh, and and i you know i'm not a lawyer or anything but i was 
I had gotten to know this family and, um, and this person, this lawyer came up and was like, started telling them like, oh, you know, pointing at these papers where she had highlighted things and was saying, because of this and this and this, like, you're going to lose your case and you should settle. And I just kind of like did this dismissive hand waving motion at her. And I was like, go away. basically. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and then she did go away and then they won their case. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, you know, if someone's yelling at you like that and it's your home on the line, it's hard to stand up for yourself and just say, leave me alone. And just, Mm. even though I'm not a lawyer and I couldn't represent them, you know, me being there to just kind of be a grounding presence and be like, you don't need to listen to her. She's full of shit. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) It, it kind of, it really helped. And it just shows that like, you know, neighbors can help each other. So that's, that's the kind of thing that the Tenants Union does. Um, and we also wrote a law. At the time of the interview in July of 2020, the Pasadena Tenants Union was trying to collect signatures on a municipal ordinance both for rent control and to require landlords to have just cause to evict tenants. This would mean that there are a defined list of reasons that tenants can be evicted, including a failure to pay rent, lease violations, or if the landlord wants to sell the building. In order for the eviction to be legal, one of these reasons has to be met. So with this ordinance, you couldn't be evicted just because you report to the city that your apartment is unsafe and needs repairs. While they did not end up collecting enough signatures at the time due to COVID-19 restrictions, they're trying again to get the ordinance on the 2022 ballot. organizing work, Jane's status as a graduate student in math changes the way people perceive her. I definitely use my position as a PhD student at Caltech to, to get myself a platform. So when I'm speaking at city council, for example, I'll say, you know, I'm a PhD student at Caltech. And then I've done some analysis of the, of the census data and stuff like that. It's really not very hard, and you don't need to be a math PhD student to do that analysis. But, but <laughs> nevertheless, um, I I point out that I am a math PhD student, mm-hmm. and it makes people listen. Unfortunately, this benefit doesn't go the other way. Though she spends a lot of time working for the tenants union, Jane doesn't feel that this translates into making her a better mathematician. I think that math is just so disconnected from reality that I don't really feel like much of the feedback goes the other way, you know, from my organizing into the math, um, which is also kind of frustrating. Um, well, I, I guess it's a lot of work to do the organizing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so it would be nice if that effort was, you know, developing skills that were actually useful for the thing I'm employed to do as well. Right. But it doesn't seem really to be the case. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Although I would say that it is kind of useful for my teaching. Although not directly related to her research output, teaching is an important part of being both a graduate student and a mathematician. Just kind of seeing all of the different crisis situations that people can experience in their lives, like being evicted, um, 
gives you a lot of empathy to the situations that your students might be going through. And so I generally try to be really careful like about making sure that people aren't slipping through the cracks. Being kind of personally involved in a lot of other people's lives at like moments when they're experiencing something really shitty, like an eviction or a medical crisis or something, um, has really made me aware of how that impacts on people's psychology. Like, I understand why someone doesn't ask for the thing that they need when Mm -hmm. they're in a really bad situation. And I think, I don't know, I try really hard to go out of my way and give people the things, even if they haven't come, you know, and explicitly asked for them through the appropriate channels. This empathy also helps Jane convince students that they truly are good at math. And I actually, I really like teaching the large undergraduate courses that have a lot of non-math majors in them because I think that it's, it's, I like to be able to give people confidence in, in their math abilities when they didn't have it before. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people come in not having confidence in their math abilities and math, I don't know, the math community can be a really um, scary place if you're not really confident Um, because people will just kind of, people tend to be very blunt and will will just say, no, that's wrong. Um, (laughs) I like to teach those courses where people are kind of like unsure about themselves and then kind of like gas them up, you know, and be like, yeah, like, oh, that was such a great idea. Like, oh, you're so good at this, you know? (laughs) Um, And then to see them build confidence. Though people may respect Jane for doing math professionally, many still harbor a dislike for the math itself. But this misunderstanding can stop us from seeing the beautiful side of the subject. Sometimes I just say I'm a mathematician, but that tends to freak people out. Why? Why? Um, They will say either, oh, I hate math, which is kind of rude, honestly. But I understand why it happens, and it's because math education, like, sucks largely. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have been traumatized by it in their childhood, and so when I bring it up, they their first instinct is to think back to those experiences and be like, oh, that, that wasn't fun, mm-hmm. and then tell me about it. Um, and that makes me really sad, because it is actually, I mean, it is kind of beautiful, and and it is aesthetic and uh, it's sad that people are not exposed to that side of math. Before I interviewed Jane, I understood maybe 10% of all the work she was doing at Caltech and in Pasadena. I was excited to understand her math, which was a field that I didn't know much about. She reminded me that I love Sudoku and that is also to love math. As she described her research, teaching, and advocacy work, I was struck by her thoughtful empathy, learned from many hours of sitting with people in crisis. 
Jane said she wasn't sure that her time working for tenants' rights helped her math. But I do at least see some similarities. All the things Jane described are slow and involve many difficult steps, some of which won't be successful to make progress. In teaching, she strategically builds her students' confidence in small strides. In her work with tenants, Jane and her colleagues are slowly changing the system, focusing on one family or one regulation at a time. And in her research, Jane joins a larger community of mathematicians that bring together small bits of each other's work to produce new and surprising results. Even our small actions build up to large consequences. But Jane asks us to grapple with which small steps we should choose to take in our research or other parts of our lives. Maybe we hope for a world where everyone can get lost in the playgrounds of what they love to study, whether it's math or another field. But we should keep in mind all the gaps that exist between the world we live in and the one that we are in the process of building. This episode was produced by me, Sophia Chiron, with help from Heidi Klumpa, the wonderful giant whose shoulders I stand on. We'd like to thank everyone who provided invaluable feedback and a safe home for the podcast, especially Aditi Narayanan, Ali Stevenson, Lucy Zhang, Alessandra Soka, Jacob Wasserman, Greg Roberts, Dima Burav, and Victor Zhang. The music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions, including Burrow by Mole Rider, A Little Powder by Nursery, and Copper Halls by Demalion. Many thanks to Jane Ponengaden for agreeing to an interview even when sheltered at home. We imagine her meandering about with her mathematical scaffolding all around and inspiring us all to be better people and assist our neighbors. Not My Thesis is a Caltech Letters podcast supported by the Moore Hofstadler Fund and the Student Investment Fund. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud by searching for the Caltech Letters feed. Look for episodes titled NMT. If you would like to invite others to come play on the Not My Thesis playground, please share it with your friends or leave us a review on iTunes. Even better, send us an email at notmythesis at gmail.com with questions, stories, or possibly even your thesis.